Hello, AJT readers. This is Josh Levitsky, and this podcast is for the May edition of AJT. And we're going to be reviewing, as always, the Editor's Choice articles. Joining me today is uh, Roz Manon, as always, from University of Nebraska Medical Center, and also one of her transplant ID uh, junior faculty colleagues, Dr. Natalia Castillo-Almeida. And we also have Dr. Bo Kelly, who is a, a current ASD board member and, and, and an expert in organ preservation and procurement. And he'll be um, going over two papers toward the end of this podcast. So welcome, everybody. And as always, well, let's go through the, the table of contents for the papers. We have four this month that we're going to review. Um, the first one will be reviewed by Natalia, which is uh, SARS-CoV-2 antibody testing for transplant recipients, a tool to personalize protection versus COVID-19 by Werbel and Seg- Dori Segev. And there's an editorial by Fishman and Alter. Then I will be discussing critical warm ischemia time point for cardiac donation after circulatory death by Sanchez Camara et al. Then Bo, uh, Dr. Kelly, Bo Kelly will be reviewing their two papers on normothermic regional perfusion that go nicely together. The first one is response to American College of Physicians statement on the ethics of transplant after normothermic regional perfusion by Parent et al. And there's a editorial by Glazier and Capron that's tied to that article. And the second one is applying the ethical framework for donation after circulatory death to thoracic normothermic regional perfusion procedures uh, by Wall et al. And um, also there's a paired, uh, paired editorial for that also. So let's get started. So um, Natalia, welcome. Um, we look forward to, to hearing your discussion about the, the COVID-19 paper. Thank you. Thank you for having me here. So in this article from uh, Werbel, Dr. Werbel and Dr. Segev, uh, they discussed the evolving rationale for anti-spike antibody testing in solid organ transplant recipients to personalize and improve protection against COVID-19. So as we all know, there are multiple vaccine platforms that have been proven successful in reducing the viral spread and preventing poor outcomes in the general population. Unfortunately, solid organ transplant recipients were excluded from the initial licensing trials. Accumulating data has reported reduced immunogenicity of SARS-CoV-2 vaccines among solid organ transplant recipients and other populations, including older individuals and those on anti-metabolite therapies and exposure to B-cell depleting agents. So the first question is uh, antibody testing. Um, and antibody testing is currently not recommended due to several reasons that are also highlighted in, in this paper. Um, there's paucity of data between antibody levels and real-world protection. Um, there's limited prospective data linking antibody levels to outcomes in solid organ transplant recipients. And I think the most important one will be the the variant operating characteristics of commercially available tests. Uh, so most commercially antibody assays do not examine neutralizing antibodies to the spike protein receptor and most are qualitative. And these concerns have um, also been highlighted in the most recent joint statement about COVID-19 vaccination in organ transplant candidates and recipients from the um, AST on 
March 13, 2022. So the authors mentioned that a failure to, ma uh, to mount any detectable antibody response to the spike protein after vaccination correlates with higher rates of COVID-19 infection. However, it remains still unclear whether antibody levels to the original SARS-CoV-2 spike antigen included in vaccines provide any actionable insights on protection against severity of disease. And this is further discussed in the accompanied editorial by Dr. Fishman and Dr. Alter. So what is the impact of additional vaccinations? So after vaccination, solar organ transplant recipients have reported poor response, hence their recommendations of doing additional doses on solid organ transplant recipients. So vaccination with three doses of an mRNA vaccine among solid organ transplant recipients have led to substantial greater protection than two doses. Um, and then an different study for, from Dr. Sergev's uh, group also look at a fourth vaccine dose um, that also increased anti-spike IgG and neutralizing capacity against many variants of concern. However, some of our solar organ transplant recipients may remain at elevated risk for Omicron infection despite of boosting. So in immunocompetent people, for example, there's 10 to 24 uh, higher titers are required to neutralize this heavily mutated variant in vitro. So what are some of the controversies surrounding the antibody testing and are antibody levels actionable, actionable biomarkers or just simple and available assay uh, like Dr. Fishman and Alter um, mentioned in their accompanying editorial? So the most important thing, there's no commonly agreed titer thresholds or cutoffs uh, that have been defined as protective in the general population. And we expect with solid organ transplant recipients that they will need a higher level due to the lack of other innate and adaptive immune responses. Um, and antibodies assays ignore the T cell and innate immunity function and may represent an incomplete metric of immunity against SARS-CoV-2. And this T cell um, assays also have some limitations, including uh, lack of real-world applicability, uh, there's lack of standardization among assays, and there's lack of accessibility as most of those T-cell assays are performed in research laboratories. So the authors propose anti-spike antibody levels measurement to risk stratify patients and direct patients toward interventions that would improve protection against COVID-19. Um, they do mention some clinical trials that are uh, going underway that are designed to induce an enhanced antibody response to SARS-CoV-2 in kidney and liver transplant recipients who have a negative or an indeterminate antibody um, level. And the participants are randomized uh, to do either just a COVID vaccine versus adjusting a little bit their immunosuppression plus giving them up an, an additional dose. Other interventions, mixed platform vaccinations to increase immunogenicity uh, and also use of monoclonal antibodies. However, despite of the use of monoclonal antibodies, there's increased concern that monoclonal antibodies may um, evade some of the current variants. So what should we be considering, at least when I was reading this article and they mentioned as well about SARS-CoV-2 antibody as a tool, to be cautious as there are some remaining questions regarding the assay type, the timing and interpretation. An antibody level should not be used to discontinue any preventive measures such as physical distancing, mask, masking and avoidance of crowded indoor environments. So 
it is essential to understand the trajectory, duration, and determinants of antibody responses. And while the authors of the paper recommend antibody testing as a tool to guide interpretation and individualized protection against COVID-19, the assays of neutralizing antibodies provide an imperfect foundation and may not measure antibodies to contemporary variants of concern. So, for example, more than 85% of tested neutralizing antibodies are, are escaped by Omicron. So as further vaccines variants emerge, uh, the editorial by Dr. Uh, Fishman also mentioned this is that it's pretty interesting, the new pan-variant vaccines that will be required. Hopefully we'll have this multiplex antibodies assays that can interrogate antibody binding across variants and provide information uh, regarding efficacy and of vaccine-induced or monoclonal blocking act activity. Well, that's a great summary of a lot of information, Natalia. And again, I thought I was the only person saying, are we really sure that these antibody titers, these neutralizing in vitro titers map to, you know, in vivo, in human um, experiences? So I thought that the comments of the viewpoint were very helpful, but I also thought the the editorial or the, you know, the, yeah, the editorial was really helpful because again, it reiterated in a very brief space that, you know, we don't understand the whole story, certainly not doing virus DNA, you know, not doing virology for a while. I've always not really worried too much about it. I think certainly things like influenza, we get cocktails of different variants. And so I had a feeling we would be heading that pathway at some point. So uh, any, do you foresee, can you anticipate the society's changing their racks or you think we're just going to stick with what we have and hope for the best based on the viewpoint? Yeah, I think we may just stick with what we have. I know that there's a lot of uh, controversy using antibodies and some clinicians face this where patients are, I wouldn't say demanding by asking to check their SARS-CoV-2 antibodies to see if they would need any additional vaccination, but it needs a clinician that can interpret uh, the findings to make a decision with the patient on what does it mean, mainly when the most that we have is qualitative and the quantitative usually takes some time and we don't know what the threshold will be for protection. So, Sometimes people think that having a SARS-CoV-2 antibody that is negative gives you a little bit more information because then you can do more of a evolution as a preemptive therapy. Okay. I think what's so hard about this is just it, it literally this is changing every few months. So we have a new variant. We have new recommendations from the CDC. We have, you know, different antibody tests being developed. I think that's what I it's difficult. It just creates a lot of confusion as to what, where this is going. And, and then sort of, I think the simplest thing is just to keep boosting immunosuppressed patients <laughs> with the hope that, you know, it's uh, going to at least prevent them maybe from going into the hospital. But it's just, it's, 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 it's difficult to just say checking antibodies is the, is the answer here. Cause clearly there's so much more to it than, than just that. But we and, get this you know, question from patients all the time. All the time. Yeah, all the time. Yeah. And and then someone saying, well, my somebody, my doctor told me my titers were zero. And, yeah. you know, and, and, and panicking versus, and, and sometimes in a way I'm like, well, I'm, I'm glad there's zero because maybe now you'll be careful. <laughs> and, 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 you know, so you don't want to have this, this, this 
this, the thought that, oh, I've got a positive spot, you know, whatever the level is, I have spike antibody. Oh, I can run out and go to my nephew's wedding and kiss 500 relatives. Yeah. 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 I completely agree. I had had patients who had had at least six uh, vaccines just based on their antibody levels where they keep boosting and it's wow. not based or based on clinical decision uh, with patient and clinician. And this COVID antibodies are pretty available to everyone. And there are a lot of platforms. So it's hard to know if there are neutralizing antibodies and what do we do with that. But I agree recommending boosting, at least for solar organ transplant, it will be a second booster. At least five doses would be at this point. All right. Well, thank you, Natalia. Let's move on to um, the next paper, which I'm going to review. This is um, entitled Critical Warm Ischemia Time Point for Cardiac Donation After Circulatory Death. Uh, this was done in Murcia, Spain. Silvia Sanchez Camaro is the lead author. I have to say this is one of the most interesting studies that we've I've reviewed here or, or seen in, in the transplant journals. I think it, it it's uh, it's very unique because it, you're taking a a human model, a real life human model of DCD that's actually being done, and they're analyzing like multiple serial samples during that procurement. And I'm not even sure I've I've seen a study done like this before. So let let's dive in. I just I thought it was really kind of fascinating and also I think informative too. So this this study revolves around the fact that uh, while DCDs are expanding in transplantation, uh, particularly in liver and kidney, um, they've really not expanded in heart transplantation. And I think that's a big part of that is you know we're having circulatory arrest and the the heart suffers significant warm ischemic time. Uh, the other organs do, but but the heart is I think directly affected by this and. That's why there's been this this real push for extracorporeal perfusion systems or NR or in situ normothemic regional perfusion NRP, which which Bo Kelly is going to be talking about, um, kind of stabilize or even revive the heart uh, for to to perfuse it to allow it to be used um, uh, to allow the organ to be used. So so this study actually. Uh, study the procurement environment of, or the procurement setting, real-life procurement of abdominal organs that were in a DCD scenario. And as the withdrawal of uh, life support was occurring and the cardiac arrest, and then there's a pause, and then the abdominal organs are removed, during this entire period of time, they were um, analyzing the heart and performing uh, cardiac biopsies, endomyocardial biopsies, serially during this whole process to see essentially at what time point in the DCD, what stage of the DCD does the cardiac endomyocardium suffer the most injury. So we can at least get a sense of, um, you know, when the ideal time to perform the procurement of the heart is and when, when the time where when there's when there's more injury occurring at a, at kind of a uh, microscopic level, because I think it's really difficult to determine clinically. So this group had there were 16 DCDs that were um, put into this study. Uh, obviously, I'm sure there there was a, there was um, you know approval for from the donor families for this 
for for doing this type of research because it, it is it's donor research essentially. And endomyocardial biopsies were, were performed immediately before the withdrawal of life support at the time of cardiac arrest and every two minutes thereafter for the next 30 minutes. So the average number of uh, myocardial biopsies was 30 per per patient um, per per or per per organ donor. Um, and this was occurring again at the same time that the abdominal organs were uh, were being procured um, after the after the cardiac arrest. And what they sent these uh, samples for to a laboratory was to look at specific markers of myocardial function, meaning calcium homeostasis, mitochondrial function, and cell death, to to look at the time point where this becomes, you know, a significant concern in terms of cardiac injury on a microscopic level. And uh, I don't want to go into all of the, the assays, but, but just basically there's a measure of calcium homeostasis involving um, phosphorylation of, of protein kinase and uh, protein kinase A and this other protein phospholambin, which are related to intracellular calcium transients. And, and a measure of mitochondrial function by evaluating the electron transport chain activity through a couple em- enzymes, and then caspase 3-7 activation, which is a cellular death assay. And essentially, they looked at these three different components, um, and I think figure one, uh, two, and three really show you uh, these different patho- pathological mechanisms that uh, over time, uh, and again, in terms of calcium, uh, homeostasis, mitochondrial function, and cellular death. And what is shown very clearly in all of these is that from the time point of the uh, withdrawal of life support up until, and, and this is a time period where the patients are generally, their blood pressures are getting low and they're, you know, this is, this is sort of thought to be a time of risk for, for the organs. And then cardiac arrest uh, occurred and then then after five minutes, there. This is when the organ procurement started to occur, and they did this for another um, thirty minutes beyond that. And we can see from the figures that at at, at every assay that was uh, looked at, um, very reliably, ten minutes after the cardiac arrest is when you start to see these markers really elevate, suggesting significant cardiac myocyte injury at that point. But up until then, even during the withdrawal period of life support, including the cardiac arrest, and even to 10 minutes after the cardiac arrest, there was really no change in these markers, suggesting that the organ is still doesn't seem to be undergoing this type of injury until there's even more prolonged, more ischemic time, which is which is what they, they've defined here very elegantly was 10 minutes after the cardiac arrest. Why is this uh, ultimately kind of an important paper? Um, I think this this it gives more a clear understanding as to the timing of when the injury is occurring, and this could theoretically help improve you know techniques for perfusing the organs and the and the strategic time to do this. And it clearly seems to not be in this uh, pre cardiac arrest or even the immediate post cardiac arrest phase. Uh, really, after that, where Techniques like normothermic uh, regional perfusion could uh, be employed. So again, they this is uh, really kind of a informative study uh, in terms of the 
the time points where these mechanisms are occurring. Um, I think the question is, is this clinically translatable to outcomes in DCD heart? Could you use this, these time points to really guide, you know, therapies for reperfusing organs? Um, that's the major question. But I just, I just thought it was a fascinating study. You know, 30 myocardial biopsies, um, during the course of, uh, procurement is, is quite amazing to, to do that and to study these in serial fashion the way they did. I thought, um, quite, quite impressive. Fascinating to see that they didn't see cessation of cardiac activity for such a long period of time to somebody, yeah. you know, I mean, they, they, I guess, no, I'm sorry. Let me take that back. They were looking, I mean, the measures look fairly consistent, but they had a thing, Josh, I didn't read this in detail. What was the nine minutes? So uh, the average, more, that's, yeah, that's the, that's the average. So basically they're starting to, they begin the withdrawal of life sustaining therapy. And the nine minutes was two cardiac arrest. Got and there it. Was so some, they they had this, some big difference. Okay. Yeah. So nine minutes. And then actually there was a pretty tight range around that from seven to 13 minutes. Um, but what, what the authors did say is that this is in their, in their, you know, program, this was actually quite a tight, uh, time period of this sort of, um, you know, hypotensive period before cardiac arrest that there's other reports around the world where this period of time is is longer. And in fact, uh, the mean in general is around 15 minutes. So okay. I think the uh, the question is, 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 can you extrapolate these data outside of this center in Spain? Because they had kind of a shorter sort of period of time before cardiac arrest than, than usual. But it's amazing how stable these markers are, even over that the, the, that period of time, if you look at and, the, and the variety the of just donor, you know, the difference in donors and it's pretty fascinating, but I agree with you. The notion that they were able to do this, um, you know, Spain's pretty prov a provocative country where the donation rate is extremely high. And, you know, thank goodness for our European colleagues pushing the limits, which will be discussed further by our colleague, Bo Kelly and his papers. Yep. So, Bo, why don't you take us away with the normothermic regional perfusion studies? Thanks for being here. Hello. I'm Bo Kelly. I'm a pediatric and adult uh, transplant surgeon and the surgical director for an OPO in Northern California. As such, I have no conflicts of interest to report. Uh, many thanks to Josh and Ross for the invitation to review uh, two editors' fixed manuscripts in AJT, highlighting the topic of thoracoabdominal normothermic regional perfusion following controlled DCD. I'll be briefly reviewing the two papers and their response to the American College of Physicians' position statement regarding their ethical concern uh, for this operation and process. My comments are not intended to condone or condemn the practice of NRP, but rather to illustrate and emphasize points for present and future consideration to fully embrace the opportunity for this innovation. For the purposes of context, it should be first stated that the ACP is an organization of internal medicine physicians, fellows, residents, and students. It boasts one of the largest physician memberships at over 160,000 members who collectively generate guidelines on their website designed to educate physicians and the community on practices that promote health. In April 2021, the ACP posted a physician statement on their website at acponline.org Although throughout the statement, they consistently refer to normothermic regional perfusion, the intent is that they are truly discussing the thoracoabdominal normothermic regional perfusion procedure. In summary, the ACP raises concerns that the normothermic regional perfusion procedure and process are not ethical, 
because they violate the dead donor rule, statute of irreversible cardiac and respiratory function, the consent to not resuscitate the patient, and, and precipitating brain death for the purposes of organ donation by performing cerebral blood flow occlusion as part of the operation. The position statement concludes that NRP raises profound ethical questions regarding the dead donor rule, fundamental ethical obligations of respect, beneficence, and justice, and the categorical imperative to never use one individual merely as a means to serve the ends of another. In an effort to not decrease public confidence in healthcare and undermine support for the organ donation system, their final statement recommends a pause on the practice of NRP. The first manuscript for review comes from the NYU Langone Medical Center Transplant Institute. The lead author is Parent, and this viewpoint response is entitled American College of Physicians Statement on the Ethics of Transplant After Normothermic Regional Perfusion. The purpose of this published rebuttal is a response to some of the key points of the ACP position statement. Specifically, they address eight ACP concerns in their arguments. I'll list the ACP statements um, that the authors debate and then summarize their arguments and conclusions. Number one, the statement states that, that the DCD NRP violates the dead donor rule. Two, there are concerns for uh, the permanent cessation of circulation and heart function. Three, the ACP states that the intention to restore circulation and resuscitate the patient violate the DNR consent and the requirements for declaring the death by circulatory criteria. Four, the ACP expresses concern that the NRP recovery protocol, including occlusion of the cerebral circulation, causes brain death. Five, the fact that death has already been legally declared by circulatory definition does not obviate the possibility of invalidation by subsequent acts such as NRP. Six, the ACP mentions how more drug overdose might lead to more DCD. There's concern that this practice may disproportionately affect an underserved and stigmatized population. Seven, the ACP is concerned that there is a lack of transparency regarding the NRP protocol with donor and recipient families, and this lack of transparency could damage trust in the organ donation process, healthcare, and subsequently clinical research. Eight, the feeling is that the use of excite perfusion devices could avoid any of these cited ethical concerns. To summarize the arguments posed to the ACP concerns, uh, the authors iterated that the dead donor rule was established by the President's Commission on Determination of Death in 1981. The deceased organ donor cannot be made dead by the organ recovery process or specifically for the purposes of organ donation. The authors argue that in cases utilizing NRP, the circulatory death is declared by the same strict criteria that apply to standard DCD protocol followed by a two to five minute hands-off period to ensure no spontaneous autoresuscitation has occurred. The authors counter-argue that the objective of instituting recirculation is designed to resuscitate organs and not the person for the purposes of saving or prolonging life in the decedent. The authors further speculate that restoration of circulation is medically ineffective and not designed to be therapeutic for the decedent, nor to change the predetermined consent for donation. The authors recognize that the definitions for death need to be revisited and potentially revised as the original definition included terminology around the irreversibility of death that in practice has been exercised as permanence of organ dysfunction. The intent behind the decision not to resuscitate is essential to the meaning of permanent cessation. The donor is not resuscitated. The organs are perfused in preparation for transplant. In summary and conclusion, in response to the ACP position statement, the NY group 
group felt strongly that TANRP uh, represents an ethical, innovative methodology for improving the quantity and quality of organs recovered by controlled donation after cardiac death. The second paper for review is entitled Applying the Ethical Framework for Donation After Circulatory Death to Thoracic Normothermic Regional Perfusion Procedures. Lead author is Wall. Uh, much like the first paper, the authors have generated a response to the ACP statement by describing an ethical framework justifying DCD donation and the specific practice of thoracoabdominal NRP. Within this framework, the authors describe four ethical questions that are raised in the ACP statement. One, does the thoracoabdominal NRP protocol meet the criteria of irreversible versus permanent cessation of circulatory and respiratory function? Two, will expanding DCD significantly increase the number of stigmatized populations already disproportionately affected by opioid substance abuse? Three, is there complete transparency with the donor and recipient family members regarding full details of the thoracoabdominal NRP protocol? Four, is the option of excitu machine perfusion more ethically acceptable than the thoracoabdominal NRP protocol? When characterizing their ethical framework for DCD donation, the authors are careful to recognize the significance of, of respect for the patient's non-maleficence and beneficence. These criteria are important in that many procedures within this, this process occur prior to, to the withdrawal of life support. The concept of non-maleficence is used to determine the extent of pre-mortem testing. To meet the strict criteria of the dead donor rule, a patient either has to have sustained irreversible cessation of circulatory and respiratory function or irreversible cessation of all functions of, entire, of the entire brain, including the brainstem. To summarize the author's comments regarding the framework questions, one, respect for the persons in DCD donation process occurs starting uh, with the authorization. Thoracoabdominal NRP does not require any special consent beyond the standard DCD authorization. And machine perfusion can be performed after confirmation of the patient's death as part of the organ recovery operation. Two, the thoracoabdominal NRP process avoids harm to recipients and donors as we're uh, following the strict process criteria for the standardized DCD. Three, the authors feel that the thoracoabdominal NRP process addresses concerns for violation of the dead donor rule by clarifying that the donor is declared deceased in a manner that is exactly like the standard DCD donation. Four, the authors address the concern that a patient might have reanimation of neural activity following institution of NRP if there is not an interruption of the cerebral flow. Thus, the authors make justification for the protocol practice of crown vessel ligation prior to initiation of NRP, making the argument that perfusion of an organ is significantly different than perfusion of an individual. Five, the authors counter the concerns about disproportionate increases in stigmatized patients becoming DCD donors following substance abuse by pointing out the overall increases in DCD donation as providing significant benefit to recipients that exceeds the risk of NRP. The authors conclude that the thoracoabdominal NRP is ethical based on the detailed arguments and solutions that they have posed. So at its core, the organ donation process generates cellular ischemia and the unquantifiable amount of reperfusion injury in the recipient. All of the protocols and gold standard practices in donation after cardiac death process are designed to mitigate the extent of this ubiquitous injury. From the donor selection demographics, to the location of withdrawal of care, to the warm ischemia time thresholds, 
trajectory of circulatory and respiratory demise after withdrawal of medical support. All of these are designed to reduce the toxic metabolites that could compromise initial and long-term function of the DCD organ uh, in the recipient. The NRP construct at the basic cellular level would be to restore membrane potentials, eliminate the lactic acidosis of anaerobic metabolism, and restore intracellular electrolyte concentrations to a functional level. The quality of the organs resulting from successful normothermic regional perfusion should not be debated at this time in the U.S. experience because there's simply not enough outcome or cost data to support this claim as a standard of DCD care in the U.S. However, it should be stated that there is enough data to support continued investigation of best practices for dissemination of education and promotion of dialogue aimed at uncovering an actionable research, any actionable research, uh, procedure changes, and policy development that will minimize the ethical concerns for the reasonable person observing this innovative process. Thank you so much. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter. 